I'd like to begin tonight with this um, little piece from Pema Chodron. If we really knew how unhappy it was making this whole planet that we all try to avoid pain and seek pleasure and how that's making us so miserable and cutting us off from our basic goodness, then we would practice as if our hair were on fire. There wouldn't be any question of thinking we have a lot of time and we can do this later. And so what I want to talk about tonight is how best to use this time, is the skillful use of our effort and energy, or the wise effort, as it's called, that resolve, that not holding back, putting our heart into it, not giving up on ourselves. And we're taught about effort in different ways in our practice. When I first came to this practice and... um, sat with one of the teachers, Upandita. It was to sit with heroic effort and not give any care to life or limb, but to practice without any consideration for your body at all. And a lot of the words were concentrate, focus, penetrate, keep it up. And um, for me, it triggered a lot of striving and um, headaches and uh, body pain and disagreeable sensations and and discouragement. And for some people, on the other hand, it was useful. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's the Burmese teacher, Tejaniya, who talks about relaxing and um, effort just being, bringing awareness. So, for example, if right now you were just to bring awareness to your body, to your hands and your feet. That's all the effort that's needed. But you have to do it continuously. That's the catch. So it's that level of effort, but just to not forget and to keep doing that all the time. It doesn't require so much um, forcing or striving. One of the analogies that I like, um, Shada used the potato the other day. The analogy I like is of a heron, because there are a lot of herons where I live. And the herons stand often on one leg, completely poised, alert, present, watchful, looking for a fish. They're not gazing off into the air, looking at the crows and the eagles and spacing out. Neither are they... (laughs) Neither are they flapping back and forth, going, when will I catch a fish? When will I catch a fish? So they're just poised, ready. And it might take a while, but they don't give up. They just keep being present. And so if we can find that kind of balance for our effort, where all we're doing is being awake continuously, that's what will um, carry us through and will lead our practice to opening. So it's that continuity that feeds our ability to have mindfulness and concentration and to settle. It keeps the mirror of mindfulness open and clear moment by moment. It can help to recognize the signs of forcing in the body, 
just to notice when you're starting to feel irritable or grumpy or tired or tense and to intentionally let it be, come to ease, have this sense of being relaxed. Lightness versus tightness. Ajahn Chah says, proper effort isn't the effort to make something particular happen. It's the effort to be aware and awake in each moment. When we try to do the practice to make it work, it leads to tension. When we do the practice and allow it to work, the Dharma takes care of itself. The Buddha saw that we can use the mental factor of energy, virya in Pali, in either skillful or unskillful ways. And that if we take a close look at our heart and mind, we can develop a discriminating wisdom that sees what mind states are skillful and lead to happiness, and what mind states are unskillful and lead to suffering. And to use our energy to support the skillful mind states and avoid the unskillful ones. He said, abandon what is unwholesome, O monks. One can abandon what is unwholesome. Therefore, I tell you, abandon what is unwholesome. If it were not possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. And so he described the four right efforts, how to use our energy wisely, essentially in two different ways. The first two in avoiding the negative mind states, guarding against them, avoiding them coming up, and then once they've arisen, abandoning them. And then the second two are cultivating positive mind states, and once they've been cultivated, maintaining them. So it's Buddhist cognitive behavioral therapy. (laughs) It's been around for a long time. And all four of them are interwoven. It's not a linear progression. They interweave and interact with each other. And we can apply them to whatever we do, whether it's our meditation practice or our lives, to our thoughts, our speech, our action. And they lead to freedom from suffering for ourselves and to others around us and to happiness. So I'd like to talk about them a little bit more. Um, in detail. One of the things that um, is so common in our society is that um, the evil is often seen as external. And then we're always working with ways to either destroy it or kill it or get rid of it in some way or to do something that's outside of ourselves. If we can allow that the negative mind states are internal and originate with the voices in our minds then it's possible to work with it in a more useful manner. When the Buddha was assailed by Mara, um, very often the, the, in the suttas it would be, Mara, I see you, Mara. Is that you, Mara? And Mara would disappear and slink off, saying, the Blessed One has seen me, the Blessed One knows me. 
And so the Buddha didn't attack Mara. He didn't attack and try and destroy the negative mind states. It was an acknowledging them and seeing how to work with them and exploring of these unskillful mind states. Tanisaro says, you're wise to the extent that you can get yourself to do things that you don't like doing, but no will result in happiness. And to refrain from doing the things that you like doing, but no will result, result in pain and harm. So that's another way of saying it. The refraining and then the promoting. So if we look at guarding for a moment, how do we guard ourselves against these negative mind states? That's a lot of what we've been doing these last few days, developing our mindfulness practice, building stability with the breath, with concentration, connecting, sustaining, using our energy wisely in that way. And each moment of mindfulness is a moment of skillful practice, is a moment of avoiding, preventing the unskillful states from arising. When we restrain the sense faculties, when we just are with the bare experience, just the bare experience before the adding begins, there's a moment that we're avoiding. If it's just hearing, just sensing, just tasting, it, there's that possibility of not moving into an unskillful state. The Buddha also suggested to his monks to tolerate the unpleasant, like um, John was talking about so beautifully last night. When we try and get comfortable all the time, it feeds a kind of fussy mind state. And then it's more likely that all sorts of different unskillful states will arise when we get fussy that way. Um, The Buddhists told the monks to tolerate cold, thirst, the touch of flies, ill-spoken words, bodily feelings that when arise are painful, racking, sharp, piercing, disagreeable, displeasing, and menacing to life. (laughs) We're not exactly asking you to do that. This is a little closer to the Deva realm practice. And he also suggested that they avoid wild elephants, stumps, cesspools, open sewers, bramble patches, cliffs, and associating with bad friends. Sometimes the bad friend is our mind. (laughs) So there was some sense in that. And as you know, it's okay. Sometimes our practice is very easy and it it seems quite simple to avoid the difficult mind states until all of a sudden we run across the cesspool of whatever it is, difficult mind state that arises. Or until some, some when we're doing a work meditation, does something that is not the way we want it. It's fine, but then these things happen. We run into these difficult states, and the unskillful mind states get triggered. What's helpful is to learn to recognize our own particular way of um, getting triggered. What are our weaknesses, so that we can watch out for them. For me, very often, it's comparing mind. And if I can just catch the beginning of it, 
or of getting it right. The old patterns are very conditioned and it's so easy to get caught that we need to know how to overcome them. We can't choose what arises. We can sometimes avoid putting ourselves in situations where um, there may be cesspools or bramble patches, but we can't avoid the triggers. We can't choose that in a lot of ways. And so there's no need to feel shame when the difficult states arise or guilt. It's arising out of causes and conditions. But we can choose the thoughts that we allow to proliferate. So the second right effort is abandoning these states once they've arisen. And we've already talked a little bit about these um, in working with difficult thoughts, as we did this morning. And the first thing, of course, is recognizing them. We need to know what the weeds look like before we start pulling them up, which thoughts are fit for attention and which are not. When the train of different thought patterns pulls in, there are carriages that are not useful to get into. We know that particular tape, or we know that particular visitor, and that's not a useful destination. So if we can, we refrain from getting in it. We'll see the danger of that particular destination. And it's also useful if to have the sense of letting unskillful thoughts wither away from inattention. So rather than feeding them, sometimes even noting them can feed them. And we notice that just by paying attention to them is allowing them to grow. It's like if I say to you, don't think about white elephants. Your mind can go, white elephants. (laughs) And so it's just shifting our attention away to sound or to something um, more skillful, but not giving it any intention so that it withdraws the source of food from it, so to speak. Ajahn Chah says, defilements are like a stray cat. If you feed it, it keeps coming around. Stop feeding it, and eventually it won't bother to come around anymore. So that's another way of, of, of helping to ourselves to abandon the thoughts when they've arisen. And then, as we have talked about, substituting um, more wholesome mind states. So when there's a lot of anger and self-judgment, it can help to do loving-kindness practice. Or if there's um, a lot of doubt, sometimes it can help to make things simple and come to the breath. There are different ways of working um, and bringing in a more skillful mind state. We can still the thought formation simply by going a little deeper and rather than looking at the content of the thought, be aware of what the process is, what's feeding it, often to come to the body. What are we aware of in the body? And sometimes we may see that um, there's a deep emotion underneath, there's unresolved feelings, and we can bring attention to that. We can see what it is that's feeding a particular thought pattern. Or we might be aware that we're taking things personally. Remember that poem I read by Stephen Levine the other day, so impersonal that we take it personally. We've identified with it. And sometimes seeing that that's where we're caught 
can be very helpful. And then there's developing the ability to say no, enough now, or later, or whatever it is. It's like using the sword of compassion, enough. But it's really important that we don't use it with aversion. With both of these first two wise efforts, it's really important that we use our efforts skillfully and don't create more suffering by using harshness to either abandon or avoid. So that we're using gentleness and wisdom and compassion in that way. So the mind starts to be able to develop the ability to say no to itself, enough. It's almost as though you have a two-year-old in there. And sometimes the two-year-old may be biting some other part of you. And you very simply say, no, people are not for biting. And you remove your (laughs) two-year-old. But you don't bite them. (laughs) So it's, it's developing that ability to just say no without harshness. When we're abandoning difficult thoughts, it helps to see the ways that we are blocking the energy rather than using it wisely. Whenever this forcing, striving, or struggling, we tend to be using up energy. When there's judging or inner battles, it gets very disheartening and tiring. If we're forcing ourselves to stay stay with a difficult mind state because we think that's a good thing to do, it can be really tiring. Energies energies also consumed um, when we do that, when we get really caught in some inner battle. So it really helps to remember to return to the body and just to notice where the contractions are and to remember non-doing, to be still, just to stop for a moment. So that right effort in that moment is simply to be aware, to be aware of what's happening moment by moment, to be awake and present in stillness rather than trying to fix or untangle something or control or overcome a difficulty just to allow it to unfold. And restlessness and anxiety also drain energy, that worrying all the time. So just to notice when those mind states are there. Energy is also consumed when we refer everything back to me and mine and I. We tend to have a lot of self-negative image or negative self-image and self-degradation. A lot of people do um, in our interviews. And um, self-degradation can sound like we don't have much um, self-acceptance or much self-importance. But actually, you're full of yourself, but you're full of yourself as a negative thing. (laughs) Yvonne Rand um, says, I'm the little piece of shit that's the center of the universe. (laughs) (laughs) And I had a friend once who hadn't even heard that analogy. And in her meditation, she suddenly had this sort of image of this sort of little turd in the middle of the plate, all surrounded by flowers, you know. (laughs) So we can think that we're being humble, but actually (laughs) 
there's a lot of self-importance. It's just in the wrong direction. <laughs> and yet, we've, so it's like we've come to fundamentally believe that there's something wrong with us, that we're inadequate, that, we have, that we're worthless. And as we practice, the more and more we practice, we discover that that is just not true, that we all have inherent value. And that was what the Buddha taught, that the value is unassailable. Just by the nature of being alive, our value is unassailable. And that we can cultivate that. And that's what the second two right efforts are about, is cultivating that and uncovering it from all the negative judgments that we've accumulated, all the negative self-beliefs and opinions that we've accumulated over the years. And just as it's important to recognize the beginnings of unskillful thoughts before they bloom and get fully developed, it's very helpful to notice the beginning of skillful ones. Often, when a negative mind state starts to disappear, there'll be a little bit of space as it dissolves, and there's a kind of neutral space. John was talking about the gap. And sometimes into that gap can creep boredom, because we want things to be more interesting. And as soon as boredom starts to creep in, if we don't notice it, then off we go into another negative um, spin again. And so if we can notice that gap and into the gap begin to cultivate and recognize a positive mind state, then our practice can really change. We can begin to uncover that unassailable value. So the Buddha taught one of the ways of helping this is to look at ourselves through eyes of kindness to equally cultivate the heart is just as important as cultivating wisdom. And in doing that, we develop loving-kindness, compassion, generosity, patience, wisdom, joy, all these beautiful states, sensitivity, um, delight, that we can bring into our practice and our lives. I was privileged to be at a conference a few years ago on, with, with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, Shirin Abadi, uh, who is a woman, Iranian woman who won the Nobel Peace Prize some years ago, and Rabbi Shakta Shalomi, um, who is equally well-known. And so these four people from different religious traditions were meeting to give um, a series of workshops on cultivating the heart. And this particular one was at the university, and they were all being um, endowed with um, honorary degrees. And um, Desmond Tutu, in accepting his degree, um, spoke with such beauty and passion um, about the suffering, his own suffering and the suffering of the people in his country, and the courage and all these strengths, and how he was accepting this, um, not for himself, but on the shoulders of all of these people. And everybody there was moved, and many of us moved to tears. It was such a powerful speech. And then he gave this little grin. And he said, in case you are thinking, what a humble fellow, what a noble fellow, 
Let me tell you a story. He said, when I first came to North America, the U.S., I was given a baseball cap. But when I put it on, it was too small, didn't fit. And did my wife say, the hat is too small? No, she said, his head is too big. (laughs) And so there was this childlike delight and ability to laugh at himself. And all the people there expressed friendliness, warmth, compassion, delight, joy, humor. He and the Dalai Lama teased each other about their different beliefs about religion. The Dalai Lama teased him about his belief in God. And then Rabbi Shakta Shalomi said, I don't believe in the God that you don't believe in. (laughs) And instead of there being this tension and heaviness and angst about the differences in religion and what suffering that's led to in the world, there was compassion and curiosity and delight. And that stayed with me for a long time. The possibility of that, that was being exemplified and transmitted right there, was very inspiring. And so that's possible to develop that. Develop that degree of loving kindness. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the um, positive qualities, the skillful mind states that we can cultivate. And we began very early on simply with building a little concentration. And concentration builds that stability and steadiness of mind that allows us to see very deeply into all aspects of our experience. And especially when we begin to develop moment-to-moment concentration, including more objects, when we're not suppressing anything in order to be still, then there's an openness and um, an ability to be with whatever arises. And within that, we also began to develop some relaxation in that. So it wasn't such a heavy, um, stiff, rigid kind of thing, but a being at ease. And the analogy that sometimes we use is that of being in an easy chair, where you're completely relaxed and you're receiving experience. So relaxation is something to cultivate, both having the alertness of the heron, but also being relaxed and spacious so that things can arise and be known and can pass. We can see the visitors as they come by, but we don't have to go out the door with them. And we don't have to necessarily invite them into tea and have them stay forever. We can just greet them as they come and go. So we connect, we stay on our chair, we stay there no matter who comes. There's that connecting and sustaining as we talked about. And just this being there. And then also we develop a beginner's mind. We come back over and over. Each time we come back is like having a clean slate. Each sitting that you come to, you release all the past sittings of the day. 
you let go of projecting what the new sittings will be like. And you just have a clean slate. It's an amazing thing. We get to begin over. We don't have to carry it with us. And so cultivating that beginner's mind is really valuable. Not that we don't learn from our experiences, but that we're not carrying so much stuff. It's like that being on the edge and allowing the not knowing, beginning again. And our mindfulness has this quality of gentleness. Mindfulness has the qualities of gentleness, openness, so that everything is included and things are allowed to come and go, and also a precision. Mindfulness shows exactly what's there. So the mirror of mindfulness is simply reflecting what's here. And we're aware that the images we see are not the mirror. The mirror remains clear. And there's no judgment added. And there's also the ability to see what's true. There's no denying what's there. So when we include it all, there's also a healing in that. We include the sleepiness. We include the boredom and the anger and the hurt and all these things. But we include them with kindness and compassion. Each time we return, each time we come back to the present moment, whether it's an easy moment or a difficult moment, we're cultivating a skillful mind state every time. So no matter what happens, we're being there anyway. We're not giving up on ourselves. And that takes courage. So we're also, as we do this, each time we come back, we're cultivating courage. One of my teachers once said to me, no matter what happens, keep doing the technique. I was having a lot of fear at the time. And uh, what he said to me was, no matter what happens, no matter how much fear there is, you just keep doing the technique. And the analogy that helped me was it's like whitewater kayaking. When the water's really rough, it is not a useful thing to stop paddling. You just keep paddling. And so it's like the next step and the next step and the next step. I'm scared, I'm scared, but I'm paddling anyway. I'm scared, I'm scared. So you're just staying there, not forcing it, but just very gently taking the next step. When, when we see ourselves starting to force something, we can acknowledge the uns- we can notice that that's an unskillful mind state again and just come back to balance. Sometimes we feel we should be with a difficult state. You know, I'm going to I should be able to be with the fear. I should be able to be with the anger. As soon as the should creeps in, then an unskillful mind state has crept in. There's a judgment there and a comparing and evaluation. So sometimes the wise effort might be to pull into an eddy for a little while and take a rest. And it's knowing our wisdom and our mindfulness tell us when that might be, when we need to just take the next step and to continue. So it's that not being afraid to keep going. Not being afraid to keep going no matter what's happening. Even if it is one tiny step at a time, it's possible. 
And each time you manage to do it, it builds trust. Trust begins to be cultivated, that it's possible. I was able to be with the anger. I was able to be with the fear. And I didn't die. I remember sometimes having enough fear that um, when I finally sat through and was able to be with it, there was this surprise. Oh, I didn't die from being afraid. And sometimes it feels that way. Or I didn't explode from the anger. You know, the rest of the people in the hall didn't die <laughs> because I fully allowed the anger to pass through. So it's just seeing and trusting begins to develop. The Dalai Lama said, work for peace in your heart and in the world. Never give up. No matter what's happening around you, work for peace in your heart and in the world. Never give up. (coughs) So it's that quality of not giving up on yourself, even when it's so difficult. So it's simply this moment and this moment, one small moment at a time that we can be with. And it's that kind of courageous effort that's not efforting, but that's just being with, that sustains and builds our practice. And then it generates an infinite store of energy. We're not exhausting ourselves by forcing or striving or falling into despair because we're into denial or pushing away and avoiding. One of the um, practices that I cultivated for a while um, was um, the analogy of a mountain. So you have this sense of yourself as a mountain. And the mountain is, is steady and unmoving and solid and rooted into the earth, no matter what the weather and there's a kind of nobility and um, dignity in the mountain, in this uprightness. But there's also an awareness that all that's happening is just weather. It's not what the mountain is. And sometimes that can be helpful. When I first did it, um, it felt uncomfortable because it felt like enduring and putting up with the weather. But that's n- that, that's... Um, that's not so skillful. That's more um, enduring, has an aversion, a quality, a tinge of aversion to it. So it's more a being with and allowing the weather, not a forcing in that way. And as we be able to begin to be able to do that, to be with this, to sometimes to um, build a little concentration, then calm begins to develop. And calm is another one of those um, qualities that um, is, we can develop, we can cultivate and develop. It comes as a result of our practice, but we can also intentionally cultivate it. In the Sutta um, in Mindfulness of Breathing, um, the Buddha talks about breathing in, calming the body, breathing out, calming the body. Actually, it goes breathing in, aware of the body, breathing out, aware of the body, breathing in, calming the body, breathing out, calming the body. And in the same way with the mind, breathing in, aware of the mind, and so forth, breathing in, calming the mind, 
breathing out, calming the mind. So we can intentionally use the breath in that way to bring calm. To breathe in and to release agitated energy. Sometimes breathing in a short breath and breathing out a long breath can bring releasing and calming. When we want to renew energy, if we're sleepy, we can breathe in a long breath and breathe out a short breath. So there's skillful ways that we can use our breathing to help in our practice in that way. Sometimes, if there's agitation, we can put our attention on calm outside of us. Sometimes it may be that everyone in the hall is really still, and there's a stillness in the hall and a stillness in people's postures. And occasionally I've opened my eyes and looked around and taken in that calm. I don't know what's going on in people's heads. (laughs) They may be no more calm than I, (laughs) but their postures are reflecting that. I was sharing a room with someone on the retreat once, and I had a lot of agitated energy in my body. And she had just washed her hair, and she was very calmly brushing her hair slowly and combing it out. And I just watched the calmness and the slow, the, the slow movements as she did it mindfully, and I felt the calm beginning to seep into me. And so just associating with calm or looking and paying attention to it outside of the agitation. Sometimes we feel like everything has to be contained in our body. And when we do that, the pressure increases. It's like um, Brownian movement in physics, you know, where you have a little box and there are a lot of particles, and so they're all, you know, bumping into each other and the energy's increased. But if you make a bigger space then there's more room for the same number of molecules and there's less, <laughs> less energy, less activity building up. And in the same way, if there's anger or if there's fear or whatever it is, if we can have the sense of allowing a bigger space, then it's less, it dilutes it a little bit if we allow it out in that way. It's able to move through. So the, we can also in that same way put our attention on calm and that's outside of us or the vastness of it. Then as we do that, we begin to get a sense of a stillness that's always present, of a stillness and vastness of awareness. When we open up a little bit, when we come out of this closed small space that's me and all my dukkha, then there's this vastness of awareness in which this arises and passes. And it's freeing when we begin to allow that kind of spaciousness. Another of these um, qualities that's... um, so vital to our practice is unconditional love, is self-acceptance. No matter how we're feeling, this wish for ourselves that um, we just wish ourselves well, no matter what mind state is here. And it's not about getting rid of anything to become something better. It's um, simply befriending ourselves in each moment. Whether it's a 
beautiful moment, an easy moment, or whether it's an envious, angry, hurtful, resentful moment. It's giving ourselves this quality of, of acceptance, just as we are. So you might want to notice, how are your moments right now? What particular, what, what is the moment like for you now? Are you treating yourself with kindness, or is there judging? And just, just to notice how that is for you towards other people in the room or towards me. Is there acceptance or is there judging? And not to judge the judging, but to notice how it is. When we can treat ourselves with generosity and with respect and with curiosity, it's really um, healing and opening. Sometimes when we see difficult mind states arise and we treat them with kindness in this way, they start to release a little. Sometimes I'll use the words, may I be safe from inner and outer harm. May I be safe. Oh, greed is arising. (laughs) May I be safe from this mind state of greed. May I be happy just as I am, even with the greed arising. So that we're allowing with humor whatever it is that's here and not resisting it. And so there's a kindness and it's also being honest about what's here. So loving kindness isn't about being nice. It's not making nice. Um, It's not kind of new age, um, you know, whitewashing I am happy and beautiful and successful. It's more... (laughs) because we can do that (laughs) it's not that because often that isn't congruent with how we're feeling it's simply the intention for ourselves to be free from suffering to be at ease, to be free so really to notice the difference between being nice and being kind some of us that are brought up in Britain like me are really trained to be nice (laughs) but it's not analogous with self-acceptance It's just not truthful. Sometimes we can't, it's very difficult for us to cultivate positive states because there's so much pain and anguish and suffering there. It feels like it would be forcing and not real to us to do it. It feels impossible to cultivate the positive. And then what's helpful is simply to notice what's here. What's the unskillful state that's here? Can I be with it with compassion? There's so much anger and so much rage here that I can't be with myself with compassion. There's so much resistance here. So it's including the resistance, including whatever the difficult mind state is. It's allowing it to be held. And sometimes you can use the phrases, may I be held in compassion? Even if you can't do it for yourself, just that intention. May I be free from pain and sorrow. May I be held in compassion. So you're fully acknowledging how difficult it is, not in denial of it, but including it. And when we do that, gradually the compassion begins to transform the anger into kindness, and the greed into generosity. This starts to be a natural transformation. 
And then we begin to be able to allow rather than resist. And when we allow, it enables the state to do what it does. And we start to see that the states just arise and pass. And then we begin to be able to cultivate a knowing rather than an owning. And that's very helpful. And there's the beginning of wisdom in that. So that we're knowing all the mind states that arise without owning them. We're cultivating mindfulness of mind states, if you will, so that there's an awareness of this is just a mind state. It's not me. It's not who I am. Then it becomes possible to allow our mistakes, to allow our difficulties, because they're not who we are. And we can see that it's that way for others, too. So we begin to be able to have a more skillful attitude towards others. Compassion arises for others when they're not their mind states, when they're not their mistakes. And as we begin to see more clearly that things arise and pass, we begin to develop and cultivate the ability to let be. Sometimes we think of letting be as letting difficult stuff be. You know, let the anger be, let the disappointment be, let the um, grief be, or whatever it is. But it also means letting beauty be. Allowing what's beautiful to be here. Allowing what's pleasant, what's joyful, what's peaceful. Allowing the positive to be as well. Fully allowing it. Thich Nhat Hanh says, Walk in a way that plants peace, serenity, and joy on the earth, as if kissing the earth with your feet. And so when you're doing walking meditation and you happen to notice it's getting kind of grim and mean, (laughs) remember that that just that possibility of joy. So we start to allow pleasant states when they arise and to allow, uh, to allow them to come and go, to fully let them be, be present, allow them in the body, allow them in the heart and mind, to appreciate them, have gratitude for them. Not grasping them, but allowing them to fully be there. So often we kind of move past them. In our practice, sometimes we want to hold on to them, but sometimes in our lives we don't fully appreciate what's pleasant. There's a um, Larson cartoon with this man who's looking around, surprised, going, what was that, what was that? And underneath it says, Bob experiences a pleasant moment. (laughs) And so we're... We're cultivating our pleasant moments as well. We're cultivating joy and peace and contentment. And we're allowing them and maintaining them. And we're not doing it out of grasping, but out of fully allowing and spaciousness in the full knowledge that they'll come and go. But that the more we put our attention in that direction, the more that will become our way the more we put our attention on what's negative and difficult and unpleasant, 
the more it entrenches that as well. And so then we begin, as this unfolds, to to develop gratitude. The Buddha said that there are two kinds of rare and precious beings, those who are generous and those who are grateful. And both of those bring joy. Our generosity brings joy when we give ourselves the gift of respect, appreciation, care, tenderness, when we give that to others, when we see that bringing joy in them. And when we receive, receiving brings joy to ourselves and others. So just for a moment, bring into your awareness something that you're grateful for today. Today I'm grateful for. And it's just whatever spontaneously arises. And one of the teachers I studied with, Ayakima, every at the beginning of each practice session would use gratitude to bring into her awareness something that she felt grateful for. And it's a beautiful way to cultivate gratitude and that kind of openness and appreciation. And as a way of of maintaining these um, skillful mind states, these um, open states, it can help to reflect and remember the times that we manage to overcome our greed, hatred, and delusion, to remember our moments of freedom, to bring them into awareness. And that helps us develop them in our lives. Sometimes we'll have insights and we'll let them go. And it helps to bring them into our awareness, to remember what it felt like, Um, the times that we didn't get caught, the times that we did find contentment and happiness. And again, not to hold on to them, but to renew and to remember what that's like. One of the difficulties I get caught in is comparing mind. And I've had some very deep experiences of moments being enough, of just the beauty and the contentment and the simplicity of this moment being enough, of my experience of, of what I am as being enough, not needing to be other. And some years ago, I was sitting teaching with someone I really admired who gave a beautiful Dharma talk, and I started to feel smaller and smaller and smaller. (laughs) And I could see the comparing mind and the contraction. And then I remembered that state of being enough and how that had been. And I could feel the opening, the expansion, the joy that came from that. It's enough. Of not needing to become anything in order to to experience enough and the contentment. And so it helps to bring those back into our awareness, the moments that we experience freedom, and to cultivate and maintain them so that they can develop and spread into other areas of our lives in that way. Maintaining, though, really requires that we keep practicing Like I said at the very beginning, it doesn't take a lot of effort to be present. It's just that we need to keep doing it. Sometimes after a retreat, there'll be this initial, you know, these bubbles of 
of um, inspiration. And then as time goes on, sometimes the bubbles can die down and our practice can get a little flat. So we need to keep renewing it. We need to return to the refuges, return to our inspiration for practice, to remember um, the times when we experience freedom, and to just keep coming back again and again. There isn't any quick fix. So we feed these positive mind states, and we keep returning to them over and over. So it's like um, a bucket, in a way. We keep putting drops in, and gradually over time, each time we put in a drop of mindfulness, of joy, of contentment, of equanimity, of appreciation, of patience, um, of delight, the bucket gradually starts over time to become more full. It doesn't help to look in other people's buckets. (laughs) Just to know and experience fully how our bucket feels and to remember that. And so these are the four wise efforts of noticing and avoiding difficulties, watching out for them, being prepared for them, using our mindfulness to prepare us so that we can notice, abandoning them once we've gotten caught, and using a number of different tools that we're learning as ways of abandoning once we're caught, and then of cultivating, developing wholesome states, and maintaining them. And of knowing that one of the ways to do that is simply to see how it actually is in this moment. What kind of state is here now? Is it a skillful one or an unskillful one? If it's an unskillful one, what am I going to do about it? How can I be with it in a way that will lead to release rather than contract and maintain it? If it's a skillful one, then just to allow it fully and to appreciate it. And so, may you all find joy in your practice. And may the effort that you are all putting in here that's so beautiful bring all these qualities further and further as the retreat continues. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.